Leviticus 9, 23 and 24. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, what we're going to talk about today specifically about this altar, the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice, and that's the one that's mentioned. They came out of the tabernacle, and when they came out, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and a fire from heaven. That's a miracle, right? It was God meeting with His people. It was God um, right there showing Himself to these human beings like us. And the fire comes down from heaven and consumed the uh, sacrifice, which was a blood sacrifice. We talked last week, there had to be blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission or forgiveness of sins. That's taught from Cain and Abel all the way through, from Adam and Eve all the way through. And so what's interesting about this is that when the tabernacle was finished, and that's what we're reading there, when things were done the way God said to do them, God honored that. God blessed it. He showed His acceptance of that. And He sent fire from heaven and consumed the sacrifice that was on the altar. Just pretend like that's the altar. It was actually five cubits by five cubits square and three cubits tall. It was made of acacia wood we talked about last week, which was a, a, a wood that grew up under very uh, arduous conditions and the most severe conditions of the desert. And it was not, nothing beautiful to look at. An acacia tree compared to something like a redwood or a beautiful pine tree or oak tree, was acacia tree is not beautiful. And, and the Bible scholars say that acacia wood represented the, the humanity of Jesus. That in His humanity there was nothing beautiful that we should just esteem Him in His flesh. Okay? And, uh, but as a root out of dry ground, the Bible said. And it was covered with brass to withstand the fire of the continual sacrifices that were being offered. But when, when it was completed and done God's way, then there was a fire that came down that was entirely of God. We're going to talk about today about the fire and, and some other things as well, but pretty much predominantly the, the fire. The fire represents in the Scriptures judgment. Okay? It represents judgment. And uh, the fire was kindled from the Lord and not of man. And uh, I just want to read this from Hebrews. If you're taking notes, I'm reading from Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. That's one of the names of the Lord. We're talking today about fire. We read here that when they came out of the tabernacle, God sends the fire and it consumes the sacrifice on the altar. Our God is a consuming fire. There's a lot of ways we could look at that. We could preach on just that scripture, but think about it as well. The Holy Ghost came with tongues and fire on the day of Pentecost. Uh, they were men that were and women that were set on fire by God, we could say. They were burned up. They were on fire for the Lord. And uh, God says, I would rather be hot or cold. It speaks to that. And our God is a consuming fire. When He takes over somebody and comes to be Lord and Savior, He's going to consume that man. And what's going to be left is going to be glorious. What's left behind is going to be the Lord. 
It's going to be Christ in us. I want Him to consume my life in that way. I want Him to burn off the chaff in my life. I want Him to burn off the things that are not of Jesus. And so, our God is a consuming fire. And and He kindles that fire. It's not a religious fire. It's not a man-made fire. That fire came down from heaven, from God, and consumed what was on the altar. The blood sacrifice that was given. And very similar thing. We'll talk about this more a little bit later. But when, when Elijah the prophet in Ahab and Jezebel's day, uh, when the, the country was so backslidden into Baal worship and idolatry, and God was bringing judgment upon them and also desired to turn this, their hearts back to Him, he, he had His man Elijah. How many of you know God's always got His man? You look around and you say, the world's going to hell. It's just gone. The God of this world has it. And God always has His man. He always has His people. He always has a testimony on this earth. And I praise God for it. And there's some of us right here that are part of that testimony. <coughs> going to live this thing and die this thing before men. And going to go to heaven and we'll, the Lord will show who, who belongs to Him. Amen? Who's right and who's wrong. It'll be testified of in due time. But Elijah makes his challenge to the prophets of Baal. And there's 450 plus another 400 that ministered in the grove. So there's 850 of those prophets and priests, false prophets and priests. And there's the man of God, Elijah, who stands before the Lord continually. And he makes this challenge, and I'll just read it. Let them, these false prophets, he gets all the people of Israel together. Why do you halt between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. If Baal is, ba is God, serve him. Don't halt between these two opinions. You call upon God when it's convenient, but you're really secretly going out in these groves and you're worshiping Baal and living ungodly. And there's murder and there's adultery and there's stealing from the poor and there's all kinds of things going on. And, and then yet you want to keep the feast when it's convenient. He says, if God's God, serve Him. And he makes this challenge. Let them, those prophets of Baal, therefore give us, let him give us two bullocks and let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under it. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under it. Because why? He says that God who answers by fire, let him be God. We'll read more about this later. But just picture it in your mind. Somebody's got to send the fire. There's got to be some power. There's got to be something God that answers. There's got to be something beyond just religion and, and groups arguing over, well, we believe this and we believe that. Some God's a real God. And one, that one's going to be the one that sends the fire. It's a fire of judgment, okay, that He sends. And so uh, the brazen altar, again, it's a place of sacrifice and burnt offerings, and it speaks of judgment. I just want to give these to you real quickly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but if you're taking notes, we see that, uh, that the fire was never to go out in Leviticus 6, 12 and 13, if you're taking notes. And I honestly think this would be a good series to take notes on. I think it would be something profitable for you to go back and, and just look at and remember. Leviticus 6, 12 and 13. And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offerings in, in order upon it. And he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offerings. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. Never. 
Okay? So that again is speaking of God's judgment, God's attitude towards sin. He's always the judge. He's the eternal judge of all the earth. He's the judge of all men. He judges men in Christ, which we're going to talk about more. But that's the picture. Let's look at just a few uh, uh, examples in the Bible. There's more than what I'm given of God's fire representing His judgment. In Sodom and Gomorrah, when the Lord came down, He spoke to His friend Abraham and told him what He was about to do. He says, I've come down to see if this iniquity, their iniquities reach to heaven. That's what He says. The sins of Sodom and Gomorrah have piled upon, built up upon each other, and a stench of it, I would picture it, has reached unto heaven, and God Almighty came down to see was it all as bad, you know, as it was, and to bring judgment. And and he's getting ready to bring judgment, and we know that we see an intercessor, Abraham, praying for his nephew Lot, and God spares Lot and his family. But we do see the fire came. That was his judgment. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. God got Lot out and put him in another town. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. It burned it up. What was it? It was a judgment of God. It was a judgment. The Bible tells us that when Elijah... We talked about him earlier, but when he, uh, the king of uh, Ahaz, Ahaziah was the king, that uh, he sent men to, uh, to take Elijah, like we wanted him, to capture him and bring him. And so he sends 50 soldiers with the captain and says, man of, uh, man of God, uh, the king says, come, come report to him immediately, basically. And Elijah says, if I'm, a, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you in the 50. Boom. They're consumed in the 50. Another king here, uh, the king hears about it. He sends another captain, another 50. A man of God. The king says, come down immediately. If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you in your 50. Boom. They're consumed. The next, next one, you think his attitude was a little different? Oh man of God, please. <laughs> Don't consume me with fire. Don't have God send fire. The king's asking you, please, to come. And he goes with him. But it just represents the judgment of the Lord. And then also, because that was a wicked king, in 2 Peter 3, which we just studied, verse 7, but the heavens and the earth which are now, this heaven and earth that we're inhabiting right now, by the same word of God are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. God's going to judge and fire this whole planet. Those are little examples. You know, Elijah and those, those people that came after him. Different examples, Sodom and Gomorrah. But the earth is going to be refined and judged with fire. It's reserved. God's kept it as a reservation for the earth. It's reserved. And God's going to bring judgment of fire upon the ungodly men, the perdition of ungodly men. And then I'll just mention one more quickly. The judgment seat of Christ is a judgment of fire. Now, it's only for believers, but it's still a judgment. And it's described here as a fire. Every man's work, every believer's work, when you study it, we see that that's the case. 1 Corinthians 3.13 Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. The things that were not truly of God are going to be burnt up. The wood, hay, and the stubble. It's representative of Christian men's and women are works. 
after we're saved. Whatever is not of God is not of eternal value. It's going to be burned up. It won't endure the judgment seat of Christ. And so there again, fire, fire representing God's judgment. So let's talk about this for a minute. We're talking about God as being a judge and he is a judge. He's holy. He's holy and he's right and he's righteous all the time. That's who he is. That's that's who he is. He is holy. Okay. He is love. There's a lot of things you can say about God that are all true. But He is holy. But at the same time, our God is ever merciful. The psalmist says, if it weren't for your mercies, and Jeremiah says the same thing, we would be consumed. It's for the Lord's mercy that we're not consumed. Because He's holy and we're not. And we're sinful. We would just be consumed by fire. He's an all-consuming fire. We would just die. He would send us to hell, a place of lake, a lake of fire, you know, an eternity of torment. He's holy, but he's merciful. What does God desire? He desires for men to be reconciled unto him. Now keep in mind we're talking about the altar and the brazen altar and what was going on, the purpose of that altar. And it speaks of Christ. He desires to forgive men. He wants men to be reconciled to Him. That is the heart of God. That's not men's hearts. Men are oblivious to it. There's none that seeks after God. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. They're all together unprofitable. We are all together unprofitable. That's God's heart. That's God's desire to come and seek and save the lost. He wants men to be reconciled unto Him. To, to not be estranged not be uh, the enemies of the Lord. Uh, and if when we were enemies, the Bible says, we were reconciled to God through the, there's death on the cross. Uh, and so we're enemies of the Lord. He wants us to be reconciled. He wants men to be saved. The Bible says, count, count the long-suffering of our God as salvation. Chalk it up to salvation. Why is God patient? Why has God not judged men already? Why are men that sin, why don't they just drop dead right now? Why are those people that are uh, around the planet blaspheming God and cursing Him right now? Cursing Him. And want to set up a religion to curse God. And want to run a political platform to curse God. Why aren't they dropping dead right now? Account that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. He's patient. He's not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. What a good God. He's merciful. You wouldn't be that way and I wouldn't be that way. Where we God. Thank the Lord we're not. And He's God. And so, the God who created us in His own image wants men to be reconciled unto Him. He seeks men. It's an active seeking. He's not sitting back seeing if somebody can find me, let them come on. Sitting up on a mountain like some guru, whoever can climb up here and figure the way, then I'll grant them some wisdom or something like that. He's actively seeking to save men. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We didn't ask Him to become flesh and dwell among us. He chose to do, become flesh and dwell among us. We didn't ask Him to go to the cross. Amen? He went to the cross. Here is love. Like we just sang it. Vast as the ocean. He wants men to be saved. And so... Uh, he wants men to, to walk with Him, to know Him. And, and all of the tabernacle worship, y'all, all of the system of that priesthood. And we read through the Old Testament sometimes, especially things like Leviticus. And, and we can get... Uh, let me hurry up and get to a good stuff. I want to get to David killing Goliath. You know, I want to get the good part. I want to get uh, something exciting like multiplying the fish and the loaves or casting out the demons. 
This is a good part. Leviticus. It's telling us and laying out the sinfulness of man, the holiness of God in one picture. The priest, the sacrifices. Why did blood have to be shed? What if you lived in that day? Daddy, why are we killing another lamb today? Because of our sin. We're killing another lamb. And He's going to forgive us. And He's merciful. That's why. Salvation is of, of the Lord. And I praise God for it. And so everything represented the Lord. It clearly revealed the blood, the sacrifices, the burnt offerings, all the furniture, the candlesticks. It was all given by God to represent Christ. And it also showed, man, the holiness of God, the, the sinfulness of man, and the, the vast distance that can never be gapped between a bridge between the two. The more they lived under that, I don't think they got more comfortable and at ease. The more that they lived under that system, and we read it, the more it showed the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of man. I need a Savior. The, the law was not given to be the Savior. Don't badmouth the law. It was never given to be the Savior. It did what it was supposed to do. It pointed the way to Jesus. It was our schoolmaster to teach us who will listen, who will learn by faith. David learned. Samuel learned. Moses learned. Okay? Men learned. They understood. Samuel. And so, it all foreshadowed the first coming of Christ. There's an insurmountable gap between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And the law was to point us to that one who would hang between heaven and earth. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Son of God and the Son of Man. How is that possible? I don't know. He did it. It's a mystery of godliness, but He did it. And it shows the absolute uh, hopelessness for me to get from where I am and who I am and what I am as a sinful man back to the God that made me. Because His sin stands between me. Your sins have separated between you and your God. No sin's going to inhabit heaven. It's holy. All right, And so for me to get from here to there to be something other than I am, I need help. I need a Savior. I need outside help. I need help not from the best of men. I need help from God, man, Jesus, to get me there. And so it points the way. The altar, the brazen altar, you had to go by, as I said, if you entered that courtyard of that tabernacle before you ever went into communion with God, you would have to meet with God first at that altar of sacrifice. Blood had to be shed. I pictured Christ as the only means of righteousness, forgiveness, eternal, eternal salvation. Turn with me into Titus. Right after 2 Timothy, turn to Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in the malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus our Savior, Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the picture. What we were before, 
what we are now and how we got there. The mercy and grace of God shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. It's not works of righteousness. We need to remember that. You know, I know that you know that. And it was not by works of the law that a man was saved. He required those blood sacrifices under the old covenant. And then he accepted them as a temporary covering. That's what atonement means, a covering. But didn't wash their sins away. Hebrews tells us that. They had to come by faith. Abraham was justified by faith. Anybody that's ever been saved in any era, in any dispensation, was saved by grace through faith. But the law did serve a wonderful purpose. The Jews looked at it, unfortunately, to be their Savior. We have Abraham for our, fa for our father. We have the law. We have the temple standing here. We do everything just right. God gave the Ten Commandments to us. And they looked to all that to be their righteousness. They looked at that to be their righteousness before God and to justify them. And it did not and could not and would not. And God was angry with them and wanted them to get their eyes on Him. The Savior. Look at what this pictures and typifies. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sins. It's not possible. So don't look to that. And anyway, so let's keep reading. Uh, I want you to look. Uh, well, I'm going I'm to read a verse that we're going to turn in just a moment. But on the altar, I'll read this scripture. Exodus 27, 1 and 2. Thou shalt make. Now this is, the, this is God speaking to Moses. He gave him the plans for the tabernacle. Then he tells him the altar. This brazen altar. Thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square. The height shall be three cubits. And thou shalt make the, the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horn shall be of the same. And thou shalt overlay it with brass. Now this altar, this brazen altar, this altar of sacrifice had four horns on it. On, or like almost like posts on the ends of the four corners. And the sacrifice was actually bound to that those horns. Now I'll just read this. Psalm 118, 27, just for time's sake, I'm going to read it. God is the Lord, which has showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. And those animal sacrifices were bound there with these cords. But the Bible says Jesus didn't have to be bound with any cords. And you know, honestly, it was not Roman nails or spikes that held the Lord there. It was love that held Him there. And I'm not being wishy-washy or sentimental. It was love that held the Lord there. God so loved the world. He gave. And He was saying, even hanging up there, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they were doing. He was going to the cross. Okay? He went to the cross. And He didn't have to be bound by nails or cords but let me tell you what these horns represented. They represented a place of refuge. They represented, represented a place where, uh, where a, a person could flee from a persecutor or a pursuer. Uh, let's say that somebody were wanting to kill them. They could go and lay hold on the horns of the altar. I'm going to give you real quickly two descriptions. I mean, two, two uh, scriptures. 1 Kings 1, 50-51. Solomon was now king. He's just starting his reign. And he was one of many of David's sons. And one of the other sons, Adoniah, thought he was going to be king. Well, God had promised it to Solomon. Read it in the Bible. 
And he wanted him to be, and God wanted him to be. Solomon was the king. But Adoniah had tried to set up his own little kingdom and steal it real quickly before Rehoboam, I mean before Solomon got uh, in, in, you know, anointed to be king. And, but then when Solomon came to power, Adonijah, Adoniah is fearful, right? He's fearful because he's had attempted this take over the kingdom. And it wasn't his and God didn't have it for him. It says, and Adoniah feared because of Solomon and he rose and went and caught hold on the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon saying, behold, Adoniah feareth King Solomon for lo, he caught hold on the horns of the altar saying, let King Solomon swear unto me today that he will not slay his servant with the sword. So he's looking at it as a place of refuge, right? He was wrong and he was guilty in everything he had done, but he was looking at that altar and laying hold on those horns as a place of refuge. Uh, same thing happened with uh, Joab. Joab had been King uh, David's general. And he lined himself with Adoniah as well. And it was known that he had lined himself with Adoniah. Then tidings came to Joab. 1 Kings 2.28 For Joab had turned after Adoniah. Uh, and Joab fled into the tabernacle of the Lord and caught hold on the horns of the altar. What are we speaking of? We're saying it, it represents Christ. The horns, we could say, represent that's the, the, that altar in Jesus Christ as the only place that uh, a sinful man can flee to to escape the judgment of sin. John the Baptist said to the Pharisees who came to his baptism, who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. Okay? And Christ is that only place where a sinful man can flee to. Lay hold on the altars. We know we're guilty. God, I'm guilty. I'm not coming here because I'm innocent. I'm coming here for mercy. I'm not coming here to justify myself or to be religious or to pay you back or see what I can do to get things right and pay you back. I'm coming laying hold on this altar crying out for mercy. And it's only Jesus Christ. That's what uh, Adonijah was doing. He was guilty and knew he was guilty. He laid hold on those altars and said, make the king swear to me that he's not going to kill me today. And so uh, that's what it represents. And I want you to read a wonderful verse. This is a great verse to write down. It says Deuteronomy 33.27 The eternal God is thy refuge. Old Testament. People think God in the Old Testament was not able to save and He was unmerciful and just legalistic. He was not. The eternal God is thy refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And He shall shall thrust out the enemy from before thee and shall stay destroy them to the enemy. But the eternal God is thy refuge and underneath are His everlasting arms to hold us up. We don't go because we're innocent. We go because we're guilty. And we flee there for refuge, for mercy. Christ is represented in that altar and even in the horns of the altar. He's our only refuge from sin and from darkness. Listen to this in Hebrews 6, 18-20. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. That means a strong hope. Okay? Who have fled, listen, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into the veil. 
whether, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we flee from wrath to lay hold on the hope. That's Jesus. That's what this altar represented. That's what the sacrifices represented. That's what the horns represented. A place of refuge. So the same God who is the judge of all men, Jehovah Shaphat, the righteous judge, the judge of all the earth, the judge who judges all things righteously, says in 1 Peter 2, is also, praise the Lord, merciful. Ever merciful. He's completely holy. He's completely merciful. He's completely just and righteous. He's not a, a corrupt judge who perverts judgment or justice. And he's completely holy and right in, in his view of sin, in his judgment upon sin. And he's completely kind and merciful and patient and long-suffering and full of grace and mercy displayed through His Son Jesus at the same time. He's completely just and righteous and, and completely compassionate and forgiving of men's sins when we come to Him by faith. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to, do, to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. And there's nobody left in between. It's going to be those in Christ. He delivers um, godly. We're godly because of Christ, because our faith in Jesus, how to deliver us and how to reserve the unjust on the, punish, the day of punishment. He's got it covered. And He's perfectly right and just and holy in how He does both. It's, it's just an amazing thing. It makes you appreciate Jesus Christ so much more. So much more thankful. The Lord is perfect in all His ways. He's perfect in His judgment against sin and His wrath against sinful man. We read about Sodom and Gomorrah. We read about the earth during the flood in Noah's day. And God was not unrighteous in any of that. It was He knew that was right and what he was going to do. He also prepared an ark to the saving of souls that would get on the ark and had a preacher preaching to tell men, get on the ark. Put your trust in God. He's going to judge this world. And they said, no, we're not interested. They mocked and ridiculed. Uh, but he's perfect, ju perfectly just. He's, his righteousness and his judgment against sin is constant and consist consistent. The Bible says the Lord's angry at the wicked every day. You know, he's, he's angry. they can turn to God and be forgiven. But just in their wickedness, persisting in their wickedness, he's just and righteous and he's not <coughs> skewed in a little gray area over here or something like that. He's right down the line. And yet at the same time, he's completely merciful and forgiving. And y'all, he doesn't have to compromise either one. That's an amazing thing. If you and I were to sit down with our own minds and say, how can a holy God ever be in a relationship, a loving son? We're joint heirs with Jesus, accounted as his children. Okay? How, how could that be without him having to change the rules a little bit? You have to change his outlook on sin. You have to. Uh, wave some magic wand, you know, and, and recreate us to where we're not sinful. Or uh, he'd have to pervert justice and let us in the back door a little slide. Come on back. Nobody's looking. Okay? He doesn't do any of that. Let me tell you what we did. He did. And we're talking. This is the heart of this sermon today. Uh, I'm going to quote from, from Romans 3, 24 and 25 if you're taking notes. 
being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. 1 John 2.2 And He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is an atoning victim. That's what it means. Atoning victim. So a sacrifice, but an atoning victim. And so what the Lord did, y'all, instead of winking at our sin and saying, okay, you're not really that bad. Uh, he didn't change his attitude towards sin at all. And he didn't change his attitude towards sinful men at all. What he did is he made a way through Jesus, through the sacrifice that he put on the altar. That sacrifice will do it. And I want sinful men to put their trust in him, to humble themselves before God Almighty and bow before Jesus Christ to come to the foot of the cross and die and let the cross have its work in you and be washed in his blood and identify with the Lord by faith in his death that he might now live in you, that that old man's put away, that old sinful man is put away and done and buried, buried with him, it says, and raised with him in newness of life. That's, the, that's how he did it. And so uh, the just died for the unjust. And the, he who did no sin, neither was God found in his mouth, the Bible said, died for us. The judgment of sin, listen, our sins and all sins was judged. God didn't, the, the righteous judge didn't let it go unjudged. He didn't let it slide. As I said, he didn't pervert judgment. He judged our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. And it just has to sink in. I know you, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I just want it to sink in a minute. God is not like a man. A man can be bought. A judge can, can be bought. I'm not saying they all are. I'm saying a judge can be bought. A parent can overlook their child's sin because they don't feel like dealing with it. If you come in after 11, you're grounded. They come in at 1230, I'm too tired to deal with it. Just whatever. And go to sleep. Parents can do that. We can pervert judgment and justice. God does not. He does not. He's not a man. He's holy and He's just. And none, not one single sin has ever. What you would consider the littlest sin, we usually consider ours the littlest, but whatever we consider the littlest sin, it never slips through the crack. He doesn't go, he doesn't go unnoticed. It didn't get by Him. Every sin was, is judged. It's judged in the person of Jesus Christ. On the cross, it was judged. God judged it. And so it was atoned for. It was paid for. It, was, it didn't go unatoned for or unpaid for. Every sin has been paid for in Christ. Now it's for me by faith to, to let Him be the payment for my sin. Let what He did on Calvary be the payment for my sin. A man's going to die one of two ways. Not, not a heart attack or you know, stroke. A man's going to die one of two of ways. He's going to die in his sins or out of his, washed from his sins. He's going to die because we've all sinned. A man's going to die in his sins and outside of Christ, or he's going to die by faith in Jesus who took his sins and the judgment for those sins. But either way, the sin's going to be judged. And it's going to be paid for. I'm going to pay for it myself in hell forever because I refuse to come to Christ or I come to Christ 
and it didn't get away with it, I got forgiven. Somebody paid for it. Jesus paid for it. He paid the ultimate price for it. The sins, all sins, and every sin, and every individual sin, is all put upon Christ, and we escape and we receive pardon. We escape to lay hold on this, the horns of the altar, to lay holds on the hope that set, holds set before us, hope set before us. All of our sin was judged. It didn't go unjudged. It didn't go unpunished. One of the most wonderful scriptures, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for He has made Him, this is speaking about the Father, I'm going to put that word in the for he, the Father, has made him, Jesus, to be sin, to be sin for us. He never committed a sin. The Bible tells us that. Sinless, spotless Lamb of God. For he had made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, Jesus, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's how he did it. So we sit and scratch our brains. How can I get from here to there? How can I ever, can a leopard change his spots? Can I ever be other than what I am and be what he is and be in a right, regular relationship with him? It's like a family. I couldn't get there any other way. And that's what that brazen altar and the sacrifices and the fiery judgment that consumed it represented. <clears> that <throat> Jesus would die for our sins. In the Old Testament, as I said last week, the comer, the sinner, that was worshiping the Lord in such a way to bring that sacrifice, would bring their own lamb. And they would lay their hands on its head and confess their sins over it. And in, in a, uh, like an identifying with, with it. And then this, the lamb was killed instead of the person. And, or, or the scapegoat was sent out to, you know, to in a place where it couldn't be, find its way back home and bear the sins away, both. Both were taken care of in Christ. But it's just an amazing thing that the Lord did that for us. Now, I'm bringing this to a close, y'all, but He says, this is what the fire on the altar represented. It represented that judgment that, again, we didn't get away with it. We didn't get away with our sin, so to speak. Nobody gets away with sin. It was judged, but Jesus took it for us. We're to be grateful. We ought to be thankful to say, I don't think there's a word that what we should be. We ought to be His. Completely His. Given to Him. Nobody got away with it. He took the brunt of it. He took the full load of it. Even people that die going to their grave cursing God. He died for their sins. They're going to be punished for their own sins because they didn't trust in Jesus to, to, have, to be their Lord and Savior. But nobody gets away with it. And so... Uh, he died in the place of sinful man. The Bible says what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own sin in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, <coughs> condemned sin in the flesh. The law couldn't do it, but God did it through His Son. How did He do it? He came to die in the likefulness of sinful flesh, though He never sinned, born of a virgin, and for sin, Condemned sin in the flesh. That's how it's done. That's how the Lord did it. This is of the Lord. The Bible says the Lord's doing it's marvelous in our eyes. And all we can do is just sit back in amazement. And it ought not become less marvelous to us. It ought to become more marvelous to us that He did it. That there, that there is that kind of love that's even in existence. It's in existence in God. And, and Him giving His Son. 
offered up by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to close with a few verses here, y'all. God accepted the sacrifice. And I want to close with this thought. Because the fire of God, which we said represents judgment, it also can represent God's acceptance of what was offered. In other words, when, they, when, when Aaron and, and Moses and they did everything right, they built the tabernacle and they, everything was the way it was supposed to be and the sacrifices were proper and they were fearing God and God sent the fire from heaven and consumed it as we open with. That can represent God's accepting or acceptance of the offering. In other words, it was done my way. And we looked at it last week that, that it came to pass the process of time that uh, Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. And so there's an acceptance or rejection based on not what you and I think is best, not what's popular. Now, what's popular in the church world, there's acceptance or rejection based on what God says, on His Word. We're going to come through Jesus or we're not coming at all. That's what He says. What if that's not popular? So you Christians are so narrow-minded. What about the, the sincere believing Hindus and the Buddhists? They're sincere and the Muslims, the kind, peace-loving Muslims. And all, you know, what about all them? You Christians, we're going to come God's way or no way. I didn't write it. He said it. I'm glad it's simple. Amen? It's simple. It's not confusing. Come the Lord's way. So the fire can represent His acceptance. And you can turn with me if you would because this is probably the last passage we look at. Isaiah 53. Everybody knows what that chapter is about. Written seven to 800 years before Jesus came to earth. And it uh, is a messianic prophecy about His first coming Specifically dealing with his his crucifixion. <clears throat> We're not going to read all of it, but I want to read some of it. Let's read um, four through six, and then we'll skip down. Isaiah fifty three four. We're talking about Jesus being provided by the Father as the sacrifice for the sins of the world, and then in return, the Father accepting. In other words, He gave the Son. And Jesus willingly laid down His life. And in return, the Father says, I accept this offering. It was acceptable. Like Abel's offering was accepted. Okay? Verse 4, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every man to his own way. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. All right, let's skip down to uh, to verse eight. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. This keeps putting it back on why he died. For the people, for us. Verse ten. It pleased the Lord. It is. I don't get it fully. But it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. The Father put the Son to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his, his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So what are we seeing? We're seeing, and we're going to read a couple more in just a moment. But I want to close with this, that 
Um, God's judgment, the fire represents his judgment, but his fire also represents him, his acceptance of what's offered. Okay, not Sodom and Gomorrah because there's nothing offered to him. But on, on the altar when he would come and consume it like he did with Aaron in the offering. Uh, he accepted, he provided his son and accepted his son. So we don't have to worry, oh, I wonder if he'll accept this offering. Cain brought an offering that was convenient. I'm a farmer, I got fruit of the ground, I'll give him some of that. That's not what God required. He even gave him a second chance. It required blood. Because it was obviously a sin offering to be offered. All judgment upon sin comes from God. In order for him to, to be satisfied, it has to be offered up what's acceptable to him. In the Old Testament, he required those blood sacrifices that didn't make forgiveness of sins, but made atonement. In Christ, the picture is complete. It's fulfilled. He did die. He did rise again. And it says he made his soul an offering for sin. That was it. Don't add to it. Don't you afflict yourself for sin and beat your back till you get sores on it saying, I'm paying my part of sin. Okay? The Lord paid it our part for sin. And it's an insult to think otherwise, but the Father received it. Just listen to this. We talked about Elijah's offering, right? The prophets of Baal and the, the, uh, the challenge that was made there. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, Elijah says, 1 Kings 18, that this people may know that Thou art the Lord God and that Thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. What is it saying? Elijah did it right. He did it according to God's Word, His prompting, His leading. He said it right. He did the altar right. He did the sacrifice right. His heart was right. Everything was right. It wasn't for Elijah's glory. It was for God's. He prayed that they know it wasn't for him. It was for God. And that God was turning their hearts to him. Everything was right. Boom. God accepts it. He didn't have to finish. He had to beg. Those prophets of Baal cutting themselves and jumping around all day long until the time of the evening sacrifice that they were tired of jumping around, calling on their God who never sent fire. All he does is make this simple prayer. doesn't have to make a big show about it. He calls upon God. God sends the fire. Bam. The altar's consumed. Guess what? A revival takes place. They turn to the Lord, at least for a little while. And... And we see that in the Bible. And the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 7.1, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. <coughs> and I'm just closing with this. If you're still in, in Isaiah, we're, we're, the, the fire of God on this altar representing His judgment, but also His acceptance. And, and I want... You know, the Bible says that to give ourselves a, a, a holy sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And it's offered up through Jesus Christ, it says in 1 Peter, that we might offer ourselves as spiritual sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the only way they're accepted. It's what Elijah was doing. He might not have known Jesus per se in the name. He knew the Lord. He knew a Savior was in Him and not in those burnt sacrifices. He called upon God. And, and we see it all through the Bible. I'm so thankful. And we'll close with uh, Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. 
And then we'll stand and these altars are open. This is the Father. He shall see the travail of His, His Son's soul. Remember, this is talking about Him on the cross. And shall be what? Satisfied. The Father's going to look and see the agony, the bruising, the hurt that was put upon Him. And and Father's going to say, that'll do. That works. I'm satisfied with that. I'm satisfied with my Son. I'm satisfied with the work He did when He poured out His soul as an offering for sin. I'm satisfied with that. So we're just the beneficiaries of that. We are. We're just the beneficiaries of it. We're sinful and no good. And we come to Jesus and because He's satisfied with Jesus and what He did on Calvary 2,000 years ago, He says, I'm looking at that and I'm satisfied. You're in Him. You're good with me. I know I'm being a little paraphrasing, but honestly, He shall see the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. By His knowledge shall my righteous servant, speaking of Jesus, justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide Him, Jesus, a portion with the great, and He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because He has poured out His soul unto death, and He was numbered with the transgressors, and He bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Thank you, Jesus. This is what I know the Lord wants us to have from this sermon today on the altar. Why brazen altar? Why blood? Why fire? Why sacrifices? Because it pointed to Jesus. And it was fulfilled in Jesus. And no man's going to get to that second altar, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, that golden altar of prayer, if we don't first come to this one where the blood is shed, to the cross. Okay, that's the altar that we have. And y'all stand with me and let's just worship the Lord. We sang songs about the blood today. We sang songs about Jesus being uh, crowned Him King of Kings and Lord of Lords, redeemed by His blood. And I just want us to worship Him. I don't have any specific altar call this morning. I pray that we would come to the altars though and be thankful and worship the Lord for what He did for us and we get to be a recipient of His grace and mercy and eternal life and complete forgiveness of sins and even join heirs with Jesus, even partakers of His divine nature. And it goes on and on and on. Part of the household of God. Part of the family of God. Live forever the gift of eternal life. Counted not as transgressors anymore, but counted as His servants, His people, His children. He's not ashamed to be called our God. I'd be ashamed to call me uh, you know, any relation of mine, knowing the sins I've committed. But the Lord has dealt with it. We didn't get away with it. We were pardoned. He judged Jesus for our sin. Judgment fell upon Christ that we might escape. You can't say that we gave, got away with it because we're crucified with Christ and buried with Him and raised with Him in newness of life. I don't, I don't understand it all perfectly. But I'm coming more and more to understand it and being more thankful for, for what we have in Jesus. These altars are open. Let's call upon Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord.